0: Hello, this is Rich Potter and welcome to the What's So Funny Podcast. So, here we are again. Welcome back. So, when I started this podcast, I had the idea that I would do one podcast per week. And I'm still planning to do that. I'm still doing that. And sometimes, life schedule slash the traffic inside my head get in the way of actually preparing for a podcast which is kind of the state I'm in today. I threw down a couple of notes here and there and my plan was to go into the woods and talk about them while walking the dog. Plan A didn't quite work out because it's 85 degrees and my snowflake husky of a dog has decided that he didn't want to go walking more than 10 feet into the woods. So I had to walk him back. Here I am walking alone in the woods, braving the Mosquitoes who are interrupting my flow constantly and walking through the occasional spider web. I'm trying to uh, keep that out of my tone of voice, etc. But who knows what's going to happen. And, and of course, occasionally I'm going to have to, uh, like now, walk over a fallen tree because we've had a lot of storms recently. And the, oh, this one has no bark on it and I'm barefoot. So it's extremely slippery. <coughs> Okay. Mission accomplished. So now I'm just walking through the woods and I was hoping some things would come to my mind if I I ran out of uh, things to say. Like just then. (laughs) I thought it would be good to start a podcast just with the idea that I don't have any ideas. Sometimes you have to start with nothing and make something happen that is something that I discovered in my year of paintings when I did a painting a day for a year every single day I had to come up with something to paint and many times I just didn't have an idea and I still finished that year with 365 paintings Uh, I actually tried that again about nine years later I guess it was seven years later and I got 330 days in and that was disappointing to to stop Uh, I hope I still do have a, a, a plan to finish that year posthumously, I guess I, I could call it. It's been probably eight months since I abandoned that project, but I had a plan to do a, a, a deck of playing cards with 52 different designs, and that would more than make up for the uh, 330 to 365 would get me to what 382, but I'm not doing that today. It is one of those bucket list things. I have a, an artistic bucket list, and one of them is to make my own deck of cards, uh, themed on clowns. I think it'll be cool, but I a lot of the preliminary work is in like two or three notebooks ago, and I have to dig it up, and that's, One of the problems with having a lot of creativity and very little drive-to-finish projects is I probably have 70 or 80 uh, sketchbooks full uh, on the shelf, full of ideas, some of which have come to fruition, but the vast majority have not. But today I am starting, well, I started with pretty much nothing. I jotted a few ideas down. So I'm kind of in a place where I don't really have anything to say, and I know I want to do something here at least in the bigger scope, but really right now I don't feel like. And I feel like it's uh, kind of like going to the gym. It's like you don't want to go to the gym, but you know it's gonna be good for you. And for me, it's good to kind of find something to write about, something to talk about. They're not all winners. Not everything is going to be perfect and amazing and genius, but in my eyes, the genius doesn't come out unless you swing for the fence. And I think that was a mixed metaphor, or maybe just the wrong metaphor. I I don't know why I use sports metaphors. I'm not really a sports guy. But it is a really good way to illustrate. I just jumped over a log. It's a really good way to illustrate you can't succeed without risking failure. If you're not risking failure, you're not going to be growing. And what do I start with when I have nothing to do, but I have to do something? is i check in with myself and my surroundings i look at where i am when i am how i feel and what's going on around me sometimes it's good to look at familiar surroundings in a new way sometimes it's useful to go to unfamiliar surroundings to spark inspiration and sometimes just the act of sitting down to look for inspiration you can look at your familiar surroundings in a new way. And there's also going to familiar surroundings that are constantly changing. Like if you live in a city or perhaps, I don't know, a a sports game or something. (sighs) Or music or uh, watching TV or whatever. Be careful watching TV. If you're looking to TV for inspiration, it's really important to bear in mind you're not watching the show, but you are mining for inspiration. Because it's easy to fall into that trap of, oh, this is interesting, I'll just sit down and watch for a couple minutes, and then four hours later, you wonder where the day's gone. Don't ask me how I know that. So right now, as I kind of planned, I figured this might happen. I'm walking through the woods, and what do I see? Trees. (laughs) That reminds me of that, uh, that poem. I think I shall never see a poem as lovely as a tree. And that was probably the, the one claim to fame of Joyce Kilmer, who was a poet back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. He wrote that poem. I think I shall never see a poem as lovely as a tree. If he really th- believed that, if he believed that to the core of his being, why is he trying to commemorate something that is intrinsically perfect. It is, it is a platonic ideal, and he's, he's saying that no poem is ever going to be as good as a tree, so why not just take a damn photograph and be done with it? Don't just whine about not being able to write a poem as good as the tree. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, I know poem, uh, poets are whiners, but this is just one of the most famous poems, and it's just whining about his words are inadequate for capturing the image of a tree. And he goes on about how the the tree suckles its mouth against the breast of the earth, and how it wears uh, robin's nests in in its hair, and it raises its arms to pray to God, and it gets to look at God all day long. And still he's saying that just in the opening line of that poem, this poem is inadequate. So why bother? Just look at the tree. Look, there's a tree. In fact, I think he could have just said that. Instead of all these flowery words, he could have just uh, just written in his little book of poems, look, there's a tree. And then turn page and you read something about, I don't know, uh, flowers or love or oatmeal or whatever poets write about. In any case, oops, spider spiderweb. <laughs> I'm in spiderweb territory now. They, they spin more webs down by the water and I'm walking towards a creek. So Joyce Kilmer died in 1918 at the age of 31 overdosing on German lead. His final words of the poem were poems are made by fools like me, but only God can make a tree. So there you go. He admits he's not God. He admits he's not good enough to write a poem. So just look at a damn tree. That's all I'm trying to say. But it did get me thinking about World War I weaponry. You A know, sniper's bullet caught him. He was uh, on a mission to find a machine gunner's nest. Back then, machine guns weren't something you could just carry around. They were set up on a hill, hillside somewhere, and there was a, one guy aiming and firing, There's another guy feeding bullets into it, and a third guy was pouring water onto the muscles so it didn't overheat and melt and then backfire. You know, the, the machine guns of today, they're much more efficient and much better at killing people, so hooray technology. But they also had wonderful things like flamethrowers, they could burn people alive, artillery. Oh, something I learned the advances in artillery by World War one were they got to the point where when they were aiming them, they had to take into account the rotation of the earth, so I think that 's kind of cool if they 're on one side, you just fire straight up and wait. Another thing that came out of World War One was uh, poison gas I mean it was started by the Germans, which is no surprise because they had a Diet of bratwurst, sauerkraut, and beer. So it's no wonder they started out with the poison gases because, oh my God, have you ever sat next to one of those on an airplane? World War I began. We always think of the Germans as the, the bad guys in World War I, but really it was started by this, uh, this Serbian guy. It's all the Serbian guy's fault. No, it's just the powder keg of the Balkans. Archduke Ferdinand was kind of traipsing through town. He's going tra-la-la, tra la on and outing with his wife. And this uh, Serbian guy said, Hey, hey successor to the Austro-Hungarian throne, I think I'm going to put a bullet in your head, and I'm going to take your wife down just for good measure. And then, you know, people got in a tizzy and... Austria-Hungary decided to declare war on France, I think, and then, but they didn't want to declare war until the Germans were on board, and they wanted to make sure the Ottomans were on their side, and, and then all the Belgians and the, 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 I guess, the English and the Dutch, yeah. You know, all it became a morass of uh, melees and bombings and uh, poisonings and all, all this stuff, you know, just because they, you know, they, they just killed a little archduke, so what? He wasn't even a prince. I mean, geez. I mean, if I were going to have a world war, I'd have to make it over something really important, like, uh, I don't know, downing a couple of towers or something. But that's not a world war yet. But it is kind of this similar powder keg situation. There's a, a political instability in the Middle East, like there was back in Serbia and Bosnia and Her- Herzegovina. I said it right, I think. But the Ottoman Empire, they were a big player in World War One. They had an empire stretching from around the early 1300s all the way into the late 1600s, but it even kind of stuck around at its height. It covered Turkey, Egypt, Persia, Hungary, Romania, Greece, Serbia, Croatia, Bulgaria, and, and more. I, I'm just trying to cut it short. And with the control of the Ottoman Turks over such a large part of the developed world at that point, their legacy persists to this day in the form of footstools. Now, it may seem like a silly joke, but actually Ottomans are named after the place they came from. The Ottoman Empire introduced the footstools into Europe in the, I guess, early 18... I think it was the 18th century, 1800s, always get mixed up between the two. But it's, you know, you you have the Ottomans naming the, or the English naming the footstools after the Ottomans. And then if you go to Germany, an American is a type of cookie. And in Belgium, an American is a sandwich made of raw ground beef. I have no idea where that started from, but apparently somewhere someone thinks that we are uh, basically wild animals that only eat raw, flesh of animals that's been ground up with spices. Reminds me of how French fries got named because they were of course made in Belgium and Belgium is two syllables and Americans are much more tuned to single syllable words so we call them French fries because they came I guess from the French portion of Belgium. Of course in the French portion of Belgium they call them of frites or uh, Flemish fries so I have no idea. I I don't know my potato history. I mean, well, I do know that potatoes are not even a European food. It's something the the Colombian uh, post-Columbian the explorers came over to the New World and they said, "Oh look, things growing in dirt. Let's bring them home and eat them." But it cracked me up. And what? Whether I think it was around 2003 or so when George W. Bush was rattling his sword over the Middle East after 9/11, the French said, "Hey, maybe you shouldn't rattle your." so loudly and then George W. Bush or the White House or I don't even know who made the choice but they had to show their defiance and show the world that we are fighting the war on terror and we are fighting against our allies the French who had the audacity to say maybe you should think first by defiantly renaming a fried potato dish. But we probably did them a favor since they wonder why we don't eat them with mayonnaise. They eat them with mayonnaise, and I think French also use ketchup. But I I thought it would be a funny thing to say. And mayonnaise uh, is more a French sauce anyway. Mayonnaise is a French word, uh, just like mustard uh, comes from moutarde, also a French word, even though the spice itself comes from the Indian subcontinent. And ketchup, (laughs) ketchup is of course a Chinese word. The majority of linguists uh, agree that mustard came, or uh, sorry, ketchup came from a Chinese word that means tomato sauce or tomato juice, which I I always love the fact that these quintessential ideas and words come from places that don't even have the object and origin uh, from that area. Like, there were no tomatoes in China before the 1500s, and somehow the idea went all the way over to China, and then by the late 17th century, the word ketchup had transformed around into the english language as ketchup leaving us with this perfect culinary special effects blood if you went on a movie set about 80 years ago and you needed to show someone died a bloody death but also needed a condiment for the craft services table ketchup was your answer for both but back to the ottomans the ottomans were really the ottoman turks and when Columbus came over to the New World, and I'm not even sure it was Columbus who coined it, but the Westerners, the Europeans who came to the New World, they found these birds that looked like the guinea fowl, which was from East Africa, but it was imported to Europe through the Turks. So it became known as a Turkish chicken. But then going to the New World, these, these birds, that what we call turkeys, looked kind of like those birds over there. So we started calling them... Uh, turkey cocks, or turkey chickens. Of course, the French word for it is not Turkish in origin. It's the French word is coq d'end which is the cock of India. And I, it's because at the time they thought that this was India here in the United States, uh, in the Americas. The coq dend uh, uh, got changed to uh, just dend. It's a contraction that became a word because there's no apostrophe in the word dand anymore in French. D-I-N-D-E. If you, originally, uh, C-O-Q and then D-apostrophe-I-N-D-E. So, Coq dand became dend. La dinde, I believe it is, or le dand. I've never got good at my French articles. I always call the masculine thing feminine, and the feminine thing masculine because it makes no goddamn difference. You know what I'm talking about, you French people. Oh, and uh, just as a side note, in Peru, they don't even call it an Indian bird, or they don't call it a Turkish bird, they call it a Peruvian bird, it's the, uh, it's Peru bird, even though the turkey is a North American bird, it never made it down to Peru, and because during the age of exploration slash conquest of the rest of the world, were not complete idiots, but at least partial idiots. So here I am, walking through the woods, thinking about trees and the death toll of World War I. So I'm nearing the end of my walk in the woods. Not too bad for mosquito bites, but I'm pretty covered by spider webs, and I probably have three or four spiders on me right now. Walking through a puddle. Ooh. Here's a little foley for you. Now my feet are all muddy. And I'm walking around among the trees. The trees served as kind of my launching point for my inspiration today. Just something around that I looked at that kind of took me on a direction. If I had done this on a different day, it might have been a completely different topic or set of topics. But I think it's useful to know that inspiration can come pretty much from anywhere. So I hope you've enjoyed the journey with me. Hope to see you next week. Thanks for tuning in. This has been the What's So Funny podcast with Rich Potter. Thanks for tuning in. New episodes on Wednesdays.